Now, with that segue, let me start off with another awkward one. The Bible is weird. The Bible is bizarre. That's a better word than weird. Bizarre means strange or curious, usually with some interesting, interesting components. Now, the Bible is an interesting book. It's a life-changing, soul-searching, journey-through-life, corrective, instructive, powerful, all these things. But I feel like I have a tight enough relationship with God to stand before you and say it is also a bizarre book. And maybe none more bizarre than things like this. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces with the head and the suet, the fat, on the wood, which is on the fire that's on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it up in smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Did you hear what just went on there? A sweet-smelling savor. Ever heard that description? The sweet savor of, you know, entrails. On 17 different occasions in the book of Leviticus, an aroma is mentioned as something pleasing to the Lord. To the God of the universe, the creator of all things, reach nihoach, it says in Hebrew, a pleasant smell, a sweet savor, a soothing aroma, which is usually associated with burning fat and animal parts, sacrifices. Now, I do, most of us, those who consume meat, like the smell of barbecue. I love to walk out in my neighborhood and someone's barbecuing some chicken and you can smell it all in the neighborhood. That's, that's great. I love it. But they don't have any heads or entrails on their grill. So it smells pretty good, but, but that's odd, a sweet-smelling Savior, but God likes it. Why does God like the sacrifices? Anyone, first of all, does anyone know what book we started this week? Can you guess? Vayikra, and he called, called Moses into the to learn about the sacrificial service. This is the book of Levit Leviticus. Why does God like the sacrifices? Well, I want to read from gotquestions.org. Anyone familiar with this? You should be, because if you search anything on the internet, this website is going to pull up. It is like the most popular Bible answers website on the internet. The tagline for gotquestions.org your questions, biblical answers. And that's what we want, right? I mean, this is like, it represents this website on many, many occasions, the prominent, certainly evangelical, or maybe even Protestant, or maybe even Christian perspective on most of the things that you ask on the website. So here's what Got Questions says about why does God, what, what is the sweet-smelling savor? Well, the importance of a sacrifice's aroma, gotquestions.org tells us, is not the smell, but what the smell represents. And so we're, we're off to a very good start here. 
what the importance of a sacrifice's aroma is not the smell, but what the smell represents. The substitutionary atonement for sin. Darn it, gotquestions.org. We didn't make it very far. That's not right. That's not correct. That's not the biblical answer. And I'm going to talk for a little while today because this is weighty, weighty stuff. So I'll talk a little bit faster. That is not right. And the simplest rebuttal to that statement, the substitutionary atonement for sin, the simplest rebuttal is something that we read about in the Bible, in the opening portion of Leviticus. A peace offering is an offering expressing thanksgiving or gratitude to God for his bounties and mercies. This Hebrew term, offering, is zibach shlamim, which also really just gets shortened to shalamim. From what word would you think? A peace offering that says shalamim. What would you think? It's in our name, shalom. Shalom, which is meaning peace. I mean, a representative portion of the offering is burnt on the altar. A portion is given to the kohanim. The rest is eaten by the offerer and his family. Thus, everyone gets a portion of it. Now, stop right there. In terms of bizarre, if this thing that was just offered represents sin and something kind of gross, isn't it odd that God says to the priest, now eat it. And by the way, family, eat that. That's bizarre. But that's exactly what happens. What about the, the Mac Daddy offering, the big one? The burnt offering, the Olah, the elevation offering. It's what you're reading right in the beginning of Leviticus 1, the Olah. Completely burned up on the altar. No one eats anything except the skin. The skin is not burned. But this main, huge, big deal, complete, burnt up as an elevation to God offering does not always have something to do with sin. Sometimes it has nothing to do with sin. It could have something to do with sin and ultimately atonement, but it might be brought by anyone who wishes to enhance or elevate his spiritual level. Even Gentiles could bring the olah, the burnt offering. Now, we also brought additional offerings on Shabbat and the holidays. Days which for the most part are full of what? Sadness and disgrace? No, joy and expectation. Happiness, the moments when we actually meet with God, we brought offerings, which is really a better word than sacrifices. But we brought offerings. Now, gotquestions.org has something to say about that, and here's what it says. Even the larger sacrifice at the yearly Feast of Weeks focused on the redemption of sinners as the reason for the pleasing aroma. Shavuot is about sinners? The Feast of Weeks is about, that's not correct. That's not a true statement. 
the more majority of God's feasts were not about forgiveness and sin. There is one. We'll talk about it. Got questions continues by, it quotes the Bible. You shall offer, also offer one male goat as a sin offering. Another more appropriate word choice there would be purification offering. Some translations have that. But you shall offer one male goat as a sin offering and two male lambs, one year old, as a sacrifice of peace offerings. Okay? Sin offering. Let's talk about that real quick. Sin offering. How many women in here have ever had a child? Okay. So you know that you were required to bring a sin offering for that filthy act that you did by having a child, right? That's ridiculous. I'm being sarcastic. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't want it to be taken lightly. A woman who gave birth in child, a child, after childbirth brought a sin offering to the temple. Did she sin in the most beautiful act that is possible on earth to give life to another to a, to a human being? Is that a sin? Of course not. There are some interesting perspectives within Judaism which we're not going to get around to, like why that is actually a sin offering. I'll just tell you one for fun. It's because in the middle of labor, she screamed at her husband, I hate your guts, we'll never do this again. So she has to bring a sin offering. Okay. More likely, it's a purification offering. She's dealing with blood. She's dealing with life. Even in some sense, death in a weird way because she was carrying this baby as part of her no longer. There's a whole bunch of really cool stuff. But she didn't sin. So a purification offering is also what was brought on Shavuot. And some peace offerings, because guess what? We're at the temple on Shavuot to party, not feel terrible about ourselves. Okay? But as you might expect, gotquestions.org is heading somewhere with this argument. And so is the majority of teaching on the book of Leviticus from probably the last 1900 years and also teachings on the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system, these all usually point to one singular conclusion. It is this. The New Testament reveals Christ as the final sacrifice for sin. This is from God Questions. The ultimate propitiation. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus, the Son of God, was the only one who could provide the eternally pleasing sacrifice. In other words... Jesus did away with all that. Okay? He is the only pleasing aroma now. In other, other words, that means something for the average Christian. It means that the book of Leviticus has virtually zero application for you, at least the parts which have to do with sacrifices and blood and entrails and heads and guts and skin and priests, which is a lot of it. Many are told and, and believe that God's purpose in those sacrifices was the forgiveness of sins. GotQuestions.org says that's why he liked it. When he smelled it, he thought, oh, thank goodness, those rotten sinners have gotten right. The smell of entrails and burning heads has fixed the problem, and I am pleased. But the conclusion is, of course, ultimately, that he tired of that system, so he came up with a new one, and it was what? Jesus. 
the better way to be forgiven of sins. Now, question. How many have ever heard that the sacrificial system represented the failed attempt of the Jews to achieve eternal salvation through animal sacrifices? The Jews thought that animal sacrifices could remove sin and make them righteous and blameless, but then God sent Jesus and he furthermore stamped, stamped out and crushed the system by destroying the temple so no more sacrifices could be brought. How many of you have ever heard something similar to that? Almost every one of you, whether you raised your hand or not, if you ever spent any time in church. This is not church slam time. It's never church slam time at Shalom Macon. We don't do church slam time. We don't slam Christians. We don't do any of that. We think in a different direction. We teach in a different direction. And it's very valuable to illuminate some of those different directions. But this is not criticism of the church. I want you to think about this while on the surface, of course, if you're reading the book of Leviticus and you come across words like atonement and sin offerings and guilt offerings, of course you, you could draw the conclusion that this has to do with your eternal salvation and, you know, the forgiveness of sins. Let me make this very clear statement right here so you hear it. It does have something to do with sin. Okay? But I'm not ready to go into that yet. Yeshua did indeed by his, his blood, which is a very big, big concept, offer us something that is not available any other way. The book of Hebrews is our guide on this. We have previously done, I've done a long series called A Better Covenant, which you can find on the podcast page. But we're going to review some of that and we're going to cover some new material because this is why. There is so much tied up into Christian perspectives on this area, this book, this concept that is not biblical. Because it is separated from the Jewish perspective, which is the perspective and context in which Yeshua was teaching, in which the apostles understood things, and the metaphor and comparison in the Gospels and the apostolic scriptures made perfect sense to them because they knew how it worked. They understood it. Now, this incorrect way of presenting the sacrificial system causes something to happen. You draw erroneous conclusions because your initial assumptions are false. Did you know that's how that works? If you start with the wrong thing, you end up with the wrong thing, usually. So, assumptions. First of all, I've already talked a lot about it, that the sacrifices were all about sin, which I just mentioned cannot be true because we have the shalomim, the peace offerings, we have grain offerings, we even have the olah, the burnt offering, which is not always about sin. Some were about sin. Little Hebrew for you, repeat after me. Chatat, sin, asham, asham, guilt, in Yom Kippur, we say, Ashamnu. We are guilty. The Chatat offering is also called the sin offering or purification offering. The Asham offering is also the guilt offering. 
Okay, so there are some things in there that are really important about sin, but here's the difference, and you know this, sacrifices were not about what kind of sin? Intentional sin. Sacrifices were not about intentional sin. It just didn't work that way. You read in Leviticus 4, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them. And then you read through Leviticus 4 and 5, and you'll see, while we're seeing the chatat and the guilt offering, but we're also seeing unwittingly. We're seeing unintentionally. Bishgaga is the Hebrew. Intentional sin is very different. And for that kind of deliberate Conscious, intentional sin, the only kind of response that was appropriate and effective is one word which we know. It's in the gospel message, tshuva, repentance. Repentance is the only proper moral response to intentional sin which has nothing to do with an animal. It involves remorse, which is called charata, confession, vidui, that's a part of Yom Kippur, and kabbalat chayatid, a resolution, really important, that I'm never going to do this again. That's what repentance looks like. And the result of that is something called slicha umechila, which is forgive, forgiveness, God forgives us. A mere sacrifice is not enough. Slicha, forgiveness is the first step which must be taken if someone has committed a sin, whether it is against God, whether it's against man. You ask for forgiveness to the injured party. I'm sorry. I regret it. I'm sorry. Slicha in, in Hebrew, when, I mean in uh, Israel, slicha means excuse me when you run into somebody. Slicha. I'm sorry. Mechila, translated as wiping away. It's the response. Can we, can, can we try again? Can we start over? Can we put our relationship back? Okay, let's wipe that away. And then ultimately, kapara, where we have this very famous holiday called Yom Kippur. Kapara, usually translated atonement. This is the response to the person who's saying, Okay, I've done this stuff, I've done, I've apologized, we wiped it, but inside I feel, I feel so bad, I can't live with myself. Guess who can offer that kind of forgiveness? Only God. Only God. He provides this kind of atonement that can change you from the inside out, restore you. It's only God who can reach in a person and say, be comforted. And speaking of Yom Kippur, let me just ask you a question, because we're talking about sins and sacrifices, and clearly that's a big part of Yom Kippur. It is a festival that focuses on that, the intentional sins of the people. Now, which of the goats was responsible for the sins of the people? There are two goats. One is in the temple and staying, the other one is called the scapegoat, right? Which one is responsible for the sins of the people? The one sacrificed at the temple? 
What does that one do? What does that sin offering do? It is a cleansing of the temple and the furniture and the function of the temple. He's to make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgression, all their sins. He's to do the same for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their impurities. It's the other goat. I'm sorry to yell. I listened to one of the other messages from Hebrews. And I realized I'm yelling the whole time, and I'm so sorry. It's so irritating. (laughs) And I'm really going to work on trying to bring it down. So the other goat. (laughs) He leans in, puts his hands on the goat. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. Do you know what those are? Those are intentional, nasty sins. And put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. It's so interesting to note the way that Leviticus 16 ends, which is all about Yom Kippur. This will be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for B'nai Yisrael once in the year because of all their sins. It was done as Adonai commanded Moses. Now listen. God set that plan up. God did that. He wrote that. And they did it. It worked. For that year on this earth, and unless you were an absolutely unrepentant, foul, despicable human being, and if you were that, why would you go to the temple for the Yom Kippur service? It worked for this year for the on the earth. Numbers 30, or Numbers 15:30 reminds us about those people who don't have any repentance in their heart. It says, Whoever acts high-handedly, whether native-born or alien, affronts the Lord and shall be cut off from among the people because of having despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. Such a person shall be utterly cut off and bear the guilt. That's for someone who doesn't understand the word repentance. High-handed, I like that. There's another incredible perspective about sin with and without intention, which comes from a much later rabbi, Isaac Aramah, in the 15th century. He says that the difference between intentional and unintentional sin is in the case of intentional sin, both the body and the soul were at fault. The whole human was at fault. In the case of an unintentional sin, only the body was at fault, not the soul. Therefore, a physical sacrifice helps since it was only the physical act of the body that was in the wrong. A physical sacrifice cannot atone for a deliberate sin because it cannot rectify a wrong in the soul. That's awesome and deep. I'm telling you all that just to reiterate. Intentional sin, it's a different story. 
bringing a sacrifice could be part of that story, but it was not the solution to the problem ever. Hear me, ever, never, ever, never. That happens in your heart, in your head, and the gospel message supports that. How does the gospel message start? Bring a sacrifice, sort of. Repent, sacrifice yourself. But there's the other big faulty assumption, and I don't want to belabor it because it's just too obvious and we've talked too much about it. But this other, the first faulty assumption is that the sacrifices can, were, were assumed to be able to remove all sins, regardless, intentional, ceremonial, ritual, whatever. That's wrong. Two, God is mad, very mad, very angry, and it just so happens he's also bloodthirsty. This is, of course, the Old Testament God the one who created the world. And he wanted sacrifices, right? Because he, he's, he's angry. And, and we, we should be dead, but the animals pacify his hatred and anger. And words were never enough. He must be pacified with blood. And we're going to spend some time talking about some confusing scriptures about blood. Hebrews 9.22 should come to your mind. Almost all things are cleansed with blood according to the law, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And of course Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. All right. But God is not bloodthirsty. You want to talk about just straight up weird. That is weird. God is like, it's, it's usually masked in descriptions of justice and righteousness, demanding blood to meet the just requirements of forgiveness. I want to read you something, just a quick note from the art scroll Humash. Throughout the Torah, only God's four-letter four name, the tetragrammaton, Yud and He and Vav and He, his sacred name, only that name, which represents the attribute of mercy, is ever used in connections with the offerings. Never the name Elohim, which represents God's judgment and justice. Ancient idolaters believed that animal sacrifices were needed to pacify the anger of a judgmental, bloodthirsty God. This is totally foreign to Jewish belief. The Torah teaches us that offerings are a means to karav, draw closer to Hashem, the merciful God. And all of that is sort of tied to the first faulty assumption that in the old system, the one we're reading about in Leviticus, supposedly you sinned, however terribly, brought an animal to die to offer to the bloodthirsty God who was angry. So something died, thank God, it wasn't you, and all is well. Now don't do it again. But we hear from this perspective, of course, you did it again because you're human, and so you're constantly killing animals for your sin. And guess what? It became apparent that that system wasn't going to work. Um, duh. Imagine a system where I get to go and cheat on my wife and bring a lamb to a place, and it's all fine. Imagine a system where I can kill Dave Hazen and bring a bull, because it's a bigger deal. 
and be fine. Because that's the way the system works. That's all it takes. Just shed some blood. That's a, that's a silly, ridiculous idea that sins could happen, be forgiven that way, that that's the economy of God. It's silly. That's a license to sin. Bulls and cows didn't get it done. There were punishments for sin. And furthermore, and this is just a big question, if that system was working, which apparently when we read the Bible it was working, if it was working, why did Jesus even need to come? I mean, and we've talked about this before, for the bulls and the goats, so that they didn't have to give up their lives, that would be a matter of convenience and great happiness for the animals. It's odd to think in terms of God being pacified with animal blood. There must be more to this. More than substitutionary atonement, blood for our sins, this, a, a broken system. Now, I realize that when I say blood for our sins, there's a little probably part of us who knows about Yeshua, and you hear me like, uh, is, he, is he dissing that? Is he, is he saying that's not real? And you get this sort what all, the theological tick. Somebody says something you don't agree with, and you're like, uh, I don't know. Just stick around. That's always what I ask you. Anytime I start a teaching series, I always have to start it at some point in the beginning by saying, just stick around. This is the point where I ask you to question everything you ever knew. Just stick around. <laughs> Trust me. No. There must be more. There's a big, fat problem, a basic problem. goes back to the beginning, back to the sweet-smelling savor. You ready? Shocking news. God liked the sacrifices. And no matter how many people want to try to change or write that part out of the story, it is part of the story. I'm reminded of Rabbi Gordon, may his memory be forever a blessing, who said, it's like the wife who says to her husband, I want flowers. And he says, flowers? I want flowers. But why do you want flowers? I want flowers. Flowers are expensive. Flowers die. Flowers, when they die, they stink. And I mean, how am I supposed to know? Flowers? I'll tell you what. Let me buy you a lawnmower. <laughs> so, uh, let me buy you an iron. Something you can really use. And she says, I want flowers. God created this system. And in some way, it was his flowers. He liked it, took joy in it. Now, there are a lot of opinions in Judaism about why sacrifices were even part of the Torah. Again, I don't want to get into that right now, but there is this immediate refutation, and I am coming closer to the end here. Stick with me. The immediate refutation when I say God liked the sacrifices, that's not true. Read the prophets. 
read the prophets. I have read the prophets. There are a lot of negative statements in the prophetic text that could be used as proof text against that statement. Jeremiah 6.20, your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Isaiah, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offering and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Amos 5, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offering and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fat animals, I will not look on them. I think I just wasted 30-something minutes of your time. But actually, this circles us right back to the beginning, gotquestions.org, who said, God, uh, the, the, the sweet-smelling savor, gotquestions.org told us God loved the sacrifices because of what they meant. That is true. The atonement, the at-one-ment, the reconnection that was possible through something like this, drawing near for a variety of reasons, people who came with whatever they came with, seeking to, to have gone through a process of cleansing themselves and coming to him, bringing him an offering, a representation of their sincere attention to restoration. The sacrifice was not the beginning of that process or the middle or the means by which it was accomplished. It was more like a big exclamation point on the whole process. And God liked it. Sorry to yell. And we might talk about the weirdness and the bizarre component of the death of an innocent animal being a part of that. Maybe we'll see. But, the, but what the prophets were seeing when they write things like this was the opposite of the process I just described to you. They were seeing cheapening in the system. You ready for this term? Greasy grace. Literally, when fat is involved, greasy grace. I'll just bring an animal. I'll just go through the motions. What difference does it make? Dads, imagine your son messes up pretty bad. He brings you your favorite gift. And he says, I love you, Dad. Love you. And then he proceeds to go right out from there and trash your name and your family's family's reputation, and he lies, and he cheats, and he steals, and he treats you terribly, misrepresents everything, does that gift he gave you have any merit at all? Of course not. There's nothing behind it. There's no heart. There's nothing to it. And so all of the critiques of the prophets where you read them are making this point. And the idea that Jews could ever think that bringing a sacrifice on its own, just that was the whole thing, without the intention or the process and the repentance, that was not a thing. But somehow or another, it's, it's come down to that for so many people in their understanding of Judaism and the book, specifically the book we're studying, Leviticus. So I've got shocking news for you. Let's close with shocking news. 
God doesn't require blood to forgive. And we'll talk more about that. The sacrifices do work for their intended purpose then, and they will again. The sacrifices were never about wrath and pacification. And you may know all of this stuff, you probably do, because we talked about it before. But our last deep dive into the sacrifices was four years ago in 2019. That's a little while, but I'm sure you remember every single word, every conclusion, and everything that you took out of there you planted firmly in your mental file cabinet. Sure you did. But I thought four years later a little refresher couldn't hurt us. And as I said, with some, with some new, new insights, especially coming into Passover, where everyone imagines that Jesus is the blood sacrifice for our sins. So we can go to heaven. There's a lot of confusion in that understanding. And, and there's a different and beautiful understanding that will speak to you because this is important stuff. And so I want to challenge you. I always, I, I have to challenge Christian theology. It's not, again, adversarial. It's just what we do because there's a different and better way to look at certain things. Sometimes, not always. But I have to challenge that. But I think you'll find great value because the sacrifices are to teach us, connect us, inspire, and convict us. And when we learn about the sacrifice that Yeshua came, became, metaphorically speaking, there's an incredible lesson for you, his disciples, which is why I titled this series, What I Have Titled It, he died that I might live. Dot, dot, dot. That's the most important part. <laughs> he died that you might live. As what? You can learn about it from the sacrificial system. Shabbat shalom. Shalom.